Rob said to me I could speak on forgiveness because when you're as old as I am, you've had lots of experience <laughs> of forgiving. So we're going to look at the subject of forgiveness, but I just want to do a little bit of a resume of the series so far. We've had um, God's big plan in Ephesians and... <coughs> I never know whether it's going to go right or not. So Rob spoke on chosen, Simon, holy and blameless. Rob then spoke adopted, redeemed by Becky, forgiven by Rob, sealed by Simon. God is good, Paul, and then grace again in Rob. You know, it's been an amazing series, and I've just loved every minute of it. And I haven't felt that I've retired, but I have retired, but I've never felt one moment of um, frustration at not preaching or not leading. I'm just absolutely happy to be here and thrilled with what God is doing. We've been inspired and encouraged by stories of some amazing God encounters and conversations. There have been testimonies of some amazing healings and examples of answers to prayer. As we've heard over these weeks about the amazing grace and forgiveness of God, how he has provided for us, even this morning we've heard it, to be in relationship with him, how can we not just be overwhelmed? We've been chosen to be blameless in his sight. Never mind what I look like to others, or how I perceive myself, it's how I appear to God that is key here. Wow, that's fantastic, but there's even more. He predestined us for adoption. Rob spoke about this, and it's a fantastic fact. I had an adopted sister who died some years ago, but I remember the day quite clearly when I was about I think I must have been seven or eight, maybe nine years old, and there was a bit of a hullabaloo in the house, and I think my mum or my dad came in, I was playing on the floor with my toys, and I said, what's going on, and said, well, Jeanette's adopted, she's not really your sister. It wasn't handled very well, but for me, I remember saying, so what, she's still my big sister. It made no difference to me, you know. In fact, I used to get on really well with it. <laughs> um, but so we've got redemption and forgiveness of sins by God's love and grace. And it says, he lavished upon us. There's this sense of abundant extravagance in God's dealings with us. So... What I want to ask us to consider is, what's it all about? You know, if you ask someone to build you a new kitchen or build you an extension, they will first of all ask what you want to achieve, what you want to accomplish, what are the things that are important to you, maybe your ideal. And you know that no doubt this will all be constrained by the predicted cost. And your grand designs might have to have some revision or adaptation. So what is the final product that God had in view? 
Is there something beyond the words and the theology, a practical result in God's mind as he set about fulfilling his big plan? Well, Ephesians 1, verses 12 to 14 says this, In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. That's Paul and the apostles. And you also were included, that's us, in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. All that God has done for us, our ultimate destiny and our present reality is that we should be to the praise of his glory. Now that truth has astounded me for years. And just as I am today, I should live to both express and bring glory to God. Steve spoke recently amazingly well on the subject of God's glory stroke goodness. Can it be that we individually and corporately are earmarked for this high purpose to bring glory to God? Well, that's what it says. Has God had to adjust his plan because of the cost or impracticability of his high ideal? Well, if I look at my life, I can see so many ways that could have hampered God's purpose. But through it all, my testimony is that I've always been conscious of his great goodness to me. And amazingly, like this morning, some people have said encouraging things to me about it. You know, it's your family that can really see the difference as you turn nearer to Jesus. As we submit to God's leading and purpose, we should be encouraged rather than daunted because Ephesians 2 verses 9 and 10 tell us this. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, or masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I love that alternative word, masterpiece. You're God's masterpiece. You know, Michelangelo and people like that, they didn't do dozens of masterpieces. They did a masterpiece, and then they did another masterpiece. They were all individual. It wasn't a print run. It was one individual. If you get, you know, the the pictures your children do when they're little, they're not in anybody else's term of the word a masterpiece, but for you, it's a masterpiece because it was done with love and care and understanding. And I like the fact that, you know, each masterpiece is individual. But you are God's masterpiece. He's crafted you. He's fashioned you. He forms us. And he makes us what's pleasing to him. It's wonderful truth, that. So this morning, I want to share a little with you about fulfilling God's plan. So in Ephesians chapter 5, 
verses 1 and 2, we are told this by Paul, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So often we'll be with Robin Allison, and Allison will just begin to chuckle. Because something that I say, or that Rob say, or that we do, just, she thinks it's funny because we're so alike. You know, and it, but that's what it's like down in these, oh, you know, it's moving around amongst us, I should say. And he's thinking, God, that's just like Jesus. That was just what he was doing. He was just like that. You're really getting to be like him. You know, it'd be different for everybody. We all are part of God's plan. We all are part of his masterpiece. You know. So, Paul goes on in the next verse and he gives us a clue of what we should be like to live a life like Jesus. Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. And the next verse says, live a life filled with love. Following the example of Christ, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. While we live sacrificially humbly, not striving for our own rights, but looking out for others, we can emit an aroma that is pleasing to God. What do you smell like, I wonder? As God sniffs the church, is he going to get a pleasing smell? Or is he going to say, hmm, that little bit there is a little bit off? I get amazed every time I take the dog for a walk, the passion with which she puts her nose to the ground. I think, what's she smelling? Probably best not to know, but you know, I'm sure that we want to give a pleasing aroma to God. I wonder what he's smelling as he thinks about Jubilee. Hmm, Jubilee, yeah, that's nice, really good. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, Paul writes from prison and he encourages the believers. But I want to read to you the verse before that. In Ephesians chapter 3, and the last two verses, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then he carries on, and I'll read this in Ephesians Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 in the message. In the light of all this, what he's just said, in the light of all this, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up here, a prisoner for the master, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run on the road God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love. Do you like that? Yeah. Pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love. 
alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. Now that's where we get sidetracked. It's the most obvious and difficult thing to deal with, mending fences. You know how easy it is to offend people and to get offended? Do you realize that offense leads to offense? A barrier that you put up between you and other people. You know, the apostles observed Jesus every day as he healed, as he cast out demons and performed miracles. They even experienced some of it themselves. And they came back really excited to Jesus and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. What really stopped them in their tracks? What made them cry out in desperation, Lord, increase our faith, was when he taught them about forgiveness. Luke 17, Jesus said, Things that cause people to sin, stumble, be offended, are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins or misses the mark against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said, Lord, increase our faith. All right. In reply, Jesus pointed out, it's not the quantity that you need, because what you already have is of sufficient quantity. Quality, I mean. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain or mulberry tree, be uprooted and moved. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 31 to 32 tells us to actively get rid of anger, malice, etc. And we are to forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. We've already heard it. God forgives us freely without our deserving of it and actually before we sinned or repented. In the parent-child relationship, forgiveness should be, and usually is, automatic. Such forgiveness emulates Christ and is a true reflection of his person. So wouldn't it be great if you, you know I've upset you, that you've already forgiven me? You know. So how well do we forgive? I came across two articles. One reported on an American study of forgiveness with 24 and 5 year olds. It asserted that children as young as 18 months old spontaneously help others and enjoy helping 
For example, they prefer people who are kind. In their study, they found that both age groups prefer and have positive impressions of victims who are forgiving compared to those who are not. They concluded that children as young as five have a hearty appreciation of the social value of forgiveness and that this value begins to emerge by age four. Isn't that interesting? Another survey looked at more than 400 people six to nine months after the 9-11 terrorist attack in New York. They asked respondents how forgiving they felt toward the terrorists themselves and other people in general. Their results showed that people found it significantly more difficult to forgive the terrorists than to forgive themselves or others. Who can blame them? But 42% seemed willing to consider forgiving the terrorists. What is more, people who felt forgiving towards the terrorists in general reported significantly lower levels of depression and anger and fewer symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder than people who did not. It's interesting to note in that verse that we had earlier, if, if you're, not that one, um, in Luke 17, when it says about, whatever, I got it. Yes, in Luke 17, where it says that it's inevitable that people will. Oh dear. Luke 17, 1 to 5. Things that cause people to sin or be offended are bound to come. But that word, sin, offend, is the word scandalon, from which we get. A scandal. All right? It's actually derived from the word for a trap stick. I think if we go on, I've got a little picture of it. There it is. It's a trap stick. In other places, Ephesians 4.27, for example... It says, do not give the devil a foothold. That is a place of influence. Speaking of forgiveness, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this in the message, if you forgive him, talking about an instance in the church where they needed to bring discipline, I forgive him. Don't think I'm carrying around a list of personal grudges. The fact is that I'm joining in with your forgiveness as Christ is with us, guiding us. After all, we don't want to unwittingly give Satan an opening for yet more mischief. We're not oblivious to his sly ways. So... I just want to suggest to you that what Satan does so often is to put a little trap out. And the question is, 
beware of the traps. Don't let yourself get caught. Writing in 2 Timothy 23 to 26, Paul says to the servant of the Lord, you must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind or patient to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That word patient or kind literally means to face all treatment without resentment. That's what we should be. Whatever people do to you, don't resent them. Maybe that your attitude will help them to escape the trap of the devil. So what I want to share with you is seven truths about forgiveness. And uh, there is a sheet on the, I meant to mention this, there is a sheet on the bench or there on the, on the desk for signing up to Freedom in Christ course. These seven things you will find similar to the things that you will go through in the Freedom in Christ course. So the first one is this, the truth about forgiveness. Forgiveness is about you. Often we feel, why should they get away with it? It's letting them off, whatever that means. The truth is that forgiveness withheld or truth hurt retained leads inevitably to bitterness with a loss of spiritual fruit and hinders my communion to God. The truth is, that the person caught in the trap with their head in the noose is me. Not the person who was used to set the trap. I'm the person who's spiraling downwards in the cycle of bitterness and unforgiveness. But we are responsible to avoid giving offence. In Hebrews 12, it says, Work at living in peace with everyone. Work at living a holy life. Our attitude, mirrored by Paul, he said in 2 Corinthians 8, If what I eat offends someone, I'd rather not eat it. So if what I do offends someone, I'd rather not do it. And then he says in chapter 11 and verse 29, who is offended and I do not inwardly burn. You know, it's very easy to say, well, you've been offended by me, that's your problem, sort it out. You know, I didn't intend it. That's actually not right. I, If I've offended someone, I burn. I get really uncomfortable, get really upset inside. Paul says, that's it. That's how we're supposed to feel if we know we've offended someone. In Matthew, it talks about if you come to the altar and bring your gift and you know that someone is upset with you, you go to them and sort it out and then bring your gift. You know, But we'll return to that in a minute. We have a responsibility. You can't just say, Oh, it's their problem. 
they've got to sort it out. But actually, what we want to do is to make sure that we can deal with our feelings of hurt and offense because in in Hebrews 12, verses 14 to 15, it goes on to say, Look out for each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. We need to beware of becoming a tool of Satan to cause stumbling. Truth two. Forgiveness and forgetting are two very different things. You feel that somehow to forgive equates to forgetting what happened, as if it didn't matter or wasn't that big a thing anyway. We sometimes do this with young children. They come in upset. Oh, there, there, no, surely it wasn't that bad. They didn't really mean it. Actually, in the moment, maybe for a long time to come, it really does matter. It really does hurt. In some instances, it may have serious, unavoidable, and long-term consequences for the victim. We have no delete button on our minds, and it can be all too easy to remember the hurt that was done. Forgiveness is something we need to do for our own mental health and well-being. Forgetting is separate and different. That may happen over time, but there may also be a vulnerability even when the healing is good. I remember a a lady who was older than me, and uh, she'd had a terrible life. I think her marital relationship was really bad. She had been raped by her husband not once, several times, and she had a terrible experience. And she was now in her 80s, and she'd had to have an exploratory operation where they put the camera in, you know. She came, she said to me afterwards when I went to visit her in her home, she said, oh, she said, that was so awful. She said, all those thoughts and all those feelings all came back again. It was horrible. Why is that? I got it dealt with all that years ago. Why did I keep feeling all that again as though it had all been done to me again? And I just pointed out to her, I said, it's all right, Louie. There's a, there's a wound there. It's healed. But, you know, there's still a vulnerability. She felt as though it had all come back and she'd got to go through forgiveness and all that all over again. No, you don't need to. You'd be vulnerable, but you just need to bring it to Jesus and let it go. So the third truth, forgiveness is both a decision and a process. You will have heard the saying, abused people abuse people. Yeah? Well, as Christians, we can declare forgiven people can forgive people. Yeah? Repeatedly in the New Testament, there's that link between forgiving others as we have been, as we have been forgiven. And in one, in Colossians chapter three and verse thirteen, it says, "Bear with each other, and forgive one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you." To forgive 
is not always, if ever, easy. But we do have to make the decision to forgive. In the process of letting go of the hurt, we can begin to experience the full grace of forgiveness. I like this Martin Luther King quote. You know who Martin Luther King was, don't you? American pastor. Black pacifist pastor. He says, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. And that's true. Number four, forgiveness does not mean letting the person off. It does mean that I become willing to hand over all judgment to God. Scott Savage defines forgiveness in this way. Forgiveness is giving up my pursuit of revenge and trusting God to bring about justice in his own time and way. Hebrews 10 verse 30 says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. Of course, that is the biggest difficulty that we have. Because we know and rejoice in the fact that God freely forgives me of my sin. That's great. But if the person who's offended me is already or becomes a believer, then he or she will also be totally forgiven. And that can upset my sense of justice. It's not fair. I don't want them forgiven. I want them punished. I want them to suffer. But actually, we need time for the Holy Spirit to help us resolve this, you know, and come to peace in it. So truth five, forgiveness and reconciliation are separate and different. Forgiveness is the first step. And it may be that the relationship will never be healed. My responsibility is to be at peace in the situation. There are situations where it could be unsafe to reconcile. If you've been in an abusive relationship, if you've been under a controlling relationship, it can be decidedly unsafe to mend that relationship and go back into it. Where over time God gifts us reconciliation, you can never go back to how it was before. You can only move forward and work out the new relationship. Reconciliation always involves both parties. And that may not ever be possible. It's helpful to read Romans 12, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You're not responsible for the other people. You're responsible for you. As far as it depends upon me, I'm going to live in peace with everyone. Truth six. You don't need to tell the person that you forgive them. And why would you anyway? 
just to make them feel bad that they'd upset you and hurt you so you have to examine your motives forgiveness is about your freedom not theirs in practice I've found that dealing with the issue before God and forgiving from the heart can sometimes have the knock-on effect on what has been a difficult relationship and the new openness begins. I was talking to somebody 12 months or so ago and she realized that she needed to forgive members of her family. She wanted to phone them up and contact them. I said, no, 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 no. You don't do that over the phone. You do it face to face. And if you're going to do it, you look to God to bring about the opportunity. But you deal with it before God. You forgive them for what they've done. She did that, and within a very short time, she found that the relationship had begun to open up again and had begun to be made right. Well, I say made right, but it's not like it was before. They're working out a new relationship. They're working out how to function together. So truth seven is it may be helpful to share with a trusted person, really a listener. This will be for the purpose of supportive prayer. The heart of forgiveness is we forgive others, even if they don't deserve it, because we are forgiven by God, even though we have never deserved it. It's not about what you feel. It's an act of faith and trust. So I want to give you a little strategy from Freedom in Christ for how to do this. So this is what you, you do. You need to just let the Holy Spirit bring to mind anybody that you need to forgive. Somebody that's hurt you. Somebody that's upset you. You might have a dozen people on your mind right now. But you just have to go through them one at a time. Do this for every hurt, every offense. And you pray this. Lord, I choose to forgive Rob <laughs> for embarrassing me. <laughs> All right? So you choose to forgive the person for what the person did to hurt me even though it made me feel. This might be the most difficult bit to actually verbalize and put down because it's very emotional. But you've got to face up to the reality of it. You've got to be real about the situation. I choose to forgive the person for what they did to hurt me, even though it made me feel. And then, when you've done that, Lord, I entrust, Lord, I give, Lord, I release, however you want to put it, I entrust this situation and this person to you for your blessing and glory. All right? 
So I want to conclude by saying psychologists, scientists and medical experts all recognize the benefits of forgiveness. But it is by God's power and grace that he can turn every stumbling block and rock of offense into a stepping stone to bring us closer to him and make us more like him. So beware the snare. Make sure that you give it to God. And let's grow in love and grace. My prayer is this, that we should be a church where offenses quickly resolved in awesome grace and where no root of bitterness is ever allowed to spring up and defile anybody. Can I pray? If you've got things that you know you want to deal with, you might need to find someone and talk this through um, gently. There'll be people here to do that. Father, we thank you for the great example of Jesus who forgave even when he was being put on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the wonderful outpouring of your love and your grace and your kindness that we experience day by day. Lord, will you help us to be a church where offenses are cut short, where no bitterness is allowed to arise, but we just love in the grace and truth of Jesus. Amen.